during the 80s, uh, first of all, what was the reaction in your personal life to your, your presentation, your Adam's Rib presentation, your starting of the, of the Mormon Women's Forum? What was happening in your ward, with your family members, with your neighbors, with your ecclesiastical leaders? What, what happened in your world? As, were you a BYU uh, professor in, in 84 when you gave that presentation? Um, I was teaching as an adjunct professor. I mean, the whole academic world is so hierarchical, and I taught at BYU for 14 years. But all of that time I taught, I was an adjunct. I was an adjunct instructor. I had not finished. I didn't finish my PhD until 2002. I had my master's degree. So you, uh, I was a professor, right? But not in the the whole tenured system, which means that um, you have very little security. So I taught. I taught when. I taught at BYU from 1975 until 1989 as an adjunct professor, first down at the BYU campus, and then when we moved up here, I was teaching a couple of classes at the Salt Lake Center. I was doing a myth class and some classical civ classes. Um, also. I was doing that part-time because I was also having my children. My children were born between 1979 and 1984. So the adjunct teaching worked very well because I could do it, you know, nurse my baby and run and teach a class and come back again because I wasn't full-time. Um, but it, the teaching was very important. I enjoyed my teaching a lot. Uh, I never brought my you know, sunstone issues into my BYU classroom, really. And, but after I participated in uh, 1989, the debate that I mentioned where the forum sponsored the, um, the forum sponsored this debate about women in priesthood, should women have priesthood in Mormonism? which was very well publicized. It, they did a little spot on it, on the TV and, and so forth. Um, when was that? That was in, I guess, the spring of 89. I was scheduled to teach, I can't remember now whether it was one or two classes uh, at the Salt Lake Center that next fall. Um, suddenly, I was all ready to teach. I was, I was getting my syllabus together, went over to the Salt Lake Center, and I found out that my class had been canceled. And it was very st strange. Suddenly it was just not on the... I had already talked to the director about that I was going to teach my regular class and I was getting my syllabus ready, and then suddenly the class is not on the... however they used to do it back then, the you know, the class schedule for that upcoming semester. And I couldn't figure out why. So I called the secretary and said, I think there's been a mistake. They, somehow they haven't listed my class. And she started, she said, oh, well, uh, you're going to have to talk to the director of the center. So I called him up and he goes, well, we've just decided not to have that class. Well, 
I mean, I don't have time to go through all the ways that Paul and I had already seen, I can come back to one experience, that we'd seen that church leaders, if they are worried about you, that they'll try to silence you. We'd already had that experience on at least three occasions with church leaders. So I was suspicious, and I pressured him, and I said, could this have anything to do with, you know, my involvement in the Mormon Women's Forum? And I pressured him enough, and he was a good enough person that he finally broke down, and he said, well, yes, it does, and I'm really sorry. You've been a good teacher, and I'm sorry, but we can't have you anymore. And then later I had it confirmed um, by two people who knew that I, I lost my position at BYU there as an adjunct teacher because of my involvement in the Mormon Women's Forum. So that was very painful, the idea that it would, you know, and I tried to tell the director, look, I, I have never used my classroom, you know, to push my ideas about church issues. And that was when he said, yes, I know you've been a good teacher, but I'm sorry, we can't have you. I have... I have this. But between 84 and 89? So that was 89. Bishop, were there bishops? Ever yes, there? and so I started with that one, but really there was another instance uh, when we first moved to Salt Lake and we lived over in the Taylorsville area. Paul and I did a little a discussion that somehow got written up in the paper, and we heard from a bishop who liked us that he was not supposed to give us any calling or any job. So that happened to us. I'm trying to remember. It had also happened to Paul in Orem that he uh, he had talked he had taught a BYU class uh, and he had talked about the Book of Mormon and he taught Grace and there was some church some BYU professor religion department person who was upset and Paul got released from a calling. So we had that happen in Orem. We had it happen when we were in Taylorsville, when we moved into, we were living over in the, our condo in Park Place, in that ward, we knew our records had been tagged. We found out when we moved from Taylorsville over to the east side of Salt Lake into the, um, the holiday area, that when we moved, our records were tagged. What and does that mean? What it means, if your records are tagged, and we found out, I won't mention the name, but we actually had a general authority friend that we checked this out with because we didn't want to simply be paranoid. We wanted to find out if it actually happens or not. And he found out that it did. And that what happens is that if you are seen as a troublemaker, and I don't know if they still use the same system, so this would have been in about 87 we moved up to Salt Lake in 84, so in 87 we moved to the east side of the valley and found out that our records were tagged, which meant that, that when they send your records, there is some kind of an indication, I don't know exactly literally what they do, but that they have to call the previous purse, the previous leader who will tell them that you're a troublemaker and that you're not allowed to hold any position. Okay. So that's what happened. So that had happened to us. So no, 
calling ceased at some point. Yeah, although what we've also discovered, Paul and I, in fact, when we were in that Taylorsville ward, we, the stake president, they were told from a general authority, from a regional representative, our bishop was told that, you know, we were to be silenced, basically. And he secretly had us do something kind of on, because he liked us and he didn't feel like that it was right what they were doing, that we, he didn't, he felt like that we were good members and that we shouldn't have this happen. So he sort of gave us an, an inconspicuous way of participating in the ward. And eventually when we were in the, um, when we moved to, uh, when we were in the, I always get the names of the stakes mixed up, it was one of the Cottonwood stakes. Um, we had a very good bishop there that called me to be a Sunday school teacher and Paul to be a Sunday school teacher. So they have quite a bit of discretionary power and in fact, the same bishop that called me to be the Sunday school teacher um, at the time of the September 6th, he was supposed to hold a court on me. He was told to hold a court on me, and he wouldn't mm. because he felt like that it wasn't, that I didn't deserve it. So that has been our experience, both that, that um, and, and this happened from the early 80s to Paul and me, basically between about... We got married in 78, starting with about 79, starting from 1979 until 93 when Paul was excommunicated during that, what, how long is that? You know, that's quite a long period. We had one run-in after another with leaders, but what we found was that it was more leaders above who, because something was in the news that we had spoken out on a certain topic, that the topic itself, you know, the regional rep or whatever would tell the local leader that they had to call us in or that they, you know, shouldn't let us hold a calling or that we were troublemakers or something like that. And so that we were basically branded. And the only way that then we were allowed to participate from 1979 until 93 was because of the good graces of some local leader who would talk to us and say, I like these people, I want them to be able to bless the ward in some way. So really, it was that long of a period. We, we, were, we were basically branded from 1979 until 1993, and I know it was on a higher level than just the that it was, it was leaders above. And were you pained about that? Were you Extremely sad? pained. It, we were extremely pained, both my husband and I were. It, it was very hard. I mean, Paul was a convert, but he had joined very much because of a spiritual conversion. Uh, as I've already explained, you know, I had this Mormon heritage. I had been a believer. I was very passionate about Mormonism. Um, I think Paul and I, though, were both also very idealistic. Uh, you know, we, we were part of that 70s generation uh, it's interesting that when Paul and I first met at BYU, we were part of a group that was very interested in the concept of Zion, this idea of this perfect community that would, you know, economically have all things in common and, and that, you know, and, and at the time we didn't think about that we were really being influenced by this larger countercultural movement of the 60s and the 70s of the idealism of our generation and that we were just... Um, we were imbibing these same ideas and, and, and 
seeing them in the context of the church, that, that those ideals of our generation of um, the anti-authoritarianism, the, the idea of economic reform and helping the poor, the notion of racial and gender equality, all of those issues of the 1960s and 70s, we were seeing the possibility of those, and this is why we liked 19th century Mormon doctrine, was that this whole concept of this Zion community where you had the equality, we saw that as an ideal in the 19th century, and we wanted that to happen in the present church. So we were, we were and what we believed was that this was in the doctrine of Mormonism. You know, all we had to do was reawake to our own heritage, and we could find it there. So a lot of us were talking about Zion, and we were very idealistic, and really felt that the church could be better. And for both Paul and me, we also felt that those social issues were connected with the church's failure to teach what we saw as the real gospel of Christ, which was the gospel of love and grace. That for us, that so often the gospel is interpreted to mean living all the rules of the church. And Paul and I both, we both had spiritual conversions where we felt like that the real gospel was the love of Jesus Christ that transforms you into a person that wants to um, have a community that treats everybody in uh, this way of equality. You know, that was what the gospel meant to us. So we were very idealistic, you know. <laughs> I, I have to admit it. So I, I say all of that because that's connected with how much it hurt us that this was happening. And I think that at first... There's, I, I, I've heard somebody say that there's the old statement, you know, if only we can get to the czar, right? If only we can get to the czar, you know, it's these, you know, mid-level bureaucrats that are really causing the problems, but, you know, really on the top, it's God's church and it would all be okay. And I think that, that what happened to us in the church was that we were very pained by what happened, but we thought maybe, well, it's the regional reps, it's these people, it's people on the lower levels. And, and between 1979 and 1993, what we come, came to realize was that at the highest levels of the church, and finally with Elder Boyd Packer, who was instrumental in both of our excommunications, that the church didn't want us, and that our vision of Zion and our vision of the gospel was not what the church wanted, and that there was really no place for us. And so it was a process, you know, but from the light, late 70s to the early 90s of being idealistic and then finally realizing that, that at the very top levels, their vision of what the church was was very different than what we wanted. So in terms of strategy, <laughs> maybe you had uh, different strategic approaches depending on the actual era. Sounds like early on it was just a matter of our strategy is let's get the information out there, let's get people knowing about it. And once the right people know, that in and of itself will be transformative. Was there a point where you realized, uh, maybe that's not going to work, let's, have, let's go try and set up interviews with these men, let's try and get to them more directly? Or was there ever sort of, a, how much do we really want to be this outspoken, antagonistic, or um, you know, a strong voice of opposition 
that will just sort of compel over time them to start paying attention. You know, actually, John, you've just said very eloquently the the process. I, as I said, we started out idealistic and just feeling like, um, I mean, both Paul and I started out that way feeling that you just had to preach the truth, right? And that people would respond to the truth, that it was a matter of getting the information out there, and that we believed that everybody had goodwill, right? Um, I mean, Paul, Paul and I have very different personalities. For me, with my research on women and the priesthood and Joseph Smith and looking at the foundations of Mormonism, I think that I really felt at first that, as you said, oh, look, what I've discovered, you know, there is a basis in Mormon theology for women having priesthood and, and for women being the equals of men and the structure of the church. I was naive in thinking that people would just respond to it because it was so obviously uh, true from my perspective, right? And it, and it felt so good and enlightening and felt so wonderful, and I just thought they would respond to it. Um, so there was that at the beginning. But I think that because we also very early began to feel this resistance that we became realistic pretty fast too. And I guess the, although I would describe myself as always a mixture of idealism and realism that, you know, by the time we founded the Mormon Women's Forum, I was skeptical, but I still felt it was worthwhile. Uh, so I guess I've had an, always a mixture of that. In terms of strategy, Maybe one of our problems is that we've never been really good at strategy in terms of we didn't sit down and say, okay, you know, what is our strategy for change? It was more spontaneous than that. But obviously there was also a process of realizing what worked and didn't work. Um, so you asked, did we ever write letters? Um, yeah, we did. We both wrote letters. Uh, the Mormon Alliance... Um, which was founded, what year did we do that? 91, 92, I can't even remember, 92, which was uh, an organization which was meant to deal not with just spiritual abuse within the church, but also to deal with defamation against the church, although that branch has never flourished. Uh, we actually wrote a letter to the First Presidency and the Twelve Apostles where we requested a meeting asking if we can meet with them to talk about some of the issues. And Paul had tried to get audiences with various general authorities from time to time, and actually did. He talked to Dallin Oaks on one occasion, and Marlon Jensen, and various other people. Um, so there was an attempt to do that. I mean, one of the things that we realized very early as well was that if there were going to be any changes, it was not going to be at a local level. It had to be up here. And I think one of the frustrations in Mormonism is that it's very, in the Mormon LDS community, is that it's very difficult to get an audience with the higher level leaders because as we found, they, when we sent this letter, the Mormon Alliance, I didn't finish my idea there, but this connects with my other thought, which is that if you want to bring about change, you have to reach the, the upper level leaders, but there are two big obstacles. First of all, they don't want you to do it that way. They want you to talk to lower-level leaders, and yet those leaders have nothing to do with larger policy doctrinal issues, which is what we were concerned with. 
So that's one big problem. And so to even get an audience, they won't listen to you unless you're a family member like Steve Benson or you, you, know, you know them personally or something like that. I mean, the only reason Paul got an audience with Dallin Oaks is that he had been his research assistant at BYU when Dallin Oaks was the president and Paul was a law student. And the same thing, any time we've ever been able to talk to anybody, it's been through some connection. So that's one big obstacle and problem. The other problem, which we began to realize more and more, so maybe we were strategizing more than I thought consciously, is that... Um, any kind of kind of either not just criticism but even a suggestion that there is something that is wrong that you might have an answer for that they would like to hear is considered almost apostasy in and of itself because it's saying you don't have all the answers and so that was so frustrating because in fact we did try to before we said some of our strongest public things, we did try to work a little bit more under, you know, in the other direction, but you just can't get access. And anything that you say is seen as you're an upstart, you're insubordinate. Even if you try to be as polite as you can, if you're criticizing, it's seen like that. And that is a huge, huge problem in the church. I think it still is. And to what extent did you guys ever um, empathize with their situation? Because if the church rests on, on revelation, the prophetic mantle and authority, if the general membership got the idea that just by making suggestions and giving advice, they could steer the ship in some way, it would well, be, then it would be that, chaos. Doesn't that totally undermine you know, the, the feeling that God through the leadership is at the helm. Did you ever get to a place where you said, I'm frustrated, but I totally get why they can't respond to us in a direct way? I guess I feel think two things about that. First of all, I'm very empathetic toward them. And, you know, in spite of criticisms I've given about either church policy or doctrine or even disagreeing with leaders, I've always tried to be respectful to them as people and to not do any kind of ad hominem attack or say that they're bad leaders or anything. In the recent Sunstone article I have on Our Boys More Important Than Girls, uh, I do a critique of President Hinckley's talk. I have a great deal of respect for President Hinckley. I think he's a wonderful leader of the church. He's probably one of the best presidents we've ever had. He's very moderate. I think he's very thoughtful. He's an intelligent man. I have respect for them. And I know how hard it is to lead anything. I mean, as a parent, how hard is it to, to try to, you know, help your kids not over, you know, not do too much, not do too little, do the right thing. I mean, every parent knows how agonizing. I'm a teacher. It's very hard to lead in anything. I'm very empathetic toward them. I know it's difficult. And I, I really am very sympathetic with that. And I think they do a lot of wonderful things. I think the church does a lot of wonderful things. So I, that's one part of what I feel. But the other part of what I feel is that I think they could be more open to the members. And it wouldn't have to be chaos. You know, most people, the, most people don't have ideas or don't care. You know, I mean, it, it, they, I don't know. I think that it's a huge mistake on their part to see anybody who 
critiques or questions as an apostate non-believer. First of all, it's not true. And secondly, it, it just, it doesn't have to be, it, it's not this one way or the other. Either you buy into everything and everything is top down or the other way that, you know, it's chaos and everybody has an equal vote. I'm not arguing for chaos, everybody has an equal vote. But I think that there have to be some kind of avenues of discussion or, I mean, it's like a family. I remember when we were being grilled by our state president with the whole question of when in, in, in August and September of 1993 where the state president kept saying, just obey me, just obey me. It's like a parent and a child. I am the parent, you are the children, I just want you to obey me and be quiet. And I looked at him and said, that's not my style of parenting. I never have done that with my children. I always want my children to tell me their feelings, to give me their input. I think we have a healthier family if there's some interplay between us. And I think it's the same way in the church. I mean, we heard later that when the Mormon Alliance sent this letter that they were, I mean, we got a little, you know, dismissal letter back from the secretary of the First Presidency. But we heard through the grapevine that, that they saw it as insubordination and they were upset. But why? Why not? I mean, if I'm a leader, if I'm a parent, I don't know what my children are feeling. I don't know what my students, the student back there, I can't tell whether or not they understand what I'm saying up here or if even what my experience make any sense to them. It, it doesn't make any sense to me that they have to be so closed. I mean, I am empathetic to how hard it is. But I think that with some creativity that we could open up to something that would be so much more productive in the church. Because the members, the Spirit of God, works through each member of the church. And their experience matters. And yet there's no mechanism for listening to them. And to me, that's this whole model that God directs them in every little thing and we just have to be satisfied with that. That's not, that is, to me, that is so simplistic and naive. That is not how it works. And, you know, Jesus does not show up to them every week and say, you do this, this, and this. You know, I'm not saying they don't get inspiration, but we all know that when you get inspiration, that either you can misinterpret it. And not only that, how do you even know that you're asking all the right questions? You know, you know, the air conditioning, if I'm sitting at the front of the room, I'm at the front of the car, and the air is blowing on me, and I'm going, it's fine, and I'm controlling the dials, but the person in the very back, we have this huge van, and the person in the back is ready to faint because they are not getting any air whatsoever, right? I mean, and they go, I'm dying back here. Air, please, air. You know, and the person at the top says, I'm the leader here. If I let all of you control the air conditioning, you know, it's going to be horrible in here. Well, that's just not true. You've, if you, you know, you've, there's a big group here. We've got to listen to all the voices. So I just think that that is a false, a false model, the idea that we're going to have chaos if we let members talk about what their problems. Even the fact that if you say, I'm hot, I'm dying, I can't breathe, you're an apostate because you've critiqued the church, right? I mean, that's basically the analogy. It doesn't make sense to me. I think there's got to be somewhere in between 
where I've never said that, you know, that, you know, they don't have the right to create the rules or whatever. I just think that we could have a, a, a more open, um, well-functioning family, church family, if there were some mechanism, and it could be an orderly mechanism, for hearing various issues that members have.